the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me are my good friends, Mike and Brian. Gentlemen, how are you doing on this hot, hot day? I'm doing pretty well, especially because it's really nice and temperate in in the Boston area this weekend, so it's a nice change of pace. You can shut up. (laughs) I'm a little melty, but otherwise good. I'm commiserating with Brian here, Mike, (laughs) because I know he and I, we're not quite on the seventh level of hell, but we are on the escalator heading down. I mean, and I... I, I promise I will feel very badly for you when I go out for an evening bike ride tonight with my hoodie. So that's I I will feel guilty. <laughs> uh, don't worry. We got our uh, revenge in January, right? Yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> yes. It's it's February. That is the killer here. Like that is <laughs> that is rip your face off awful and ripping it off with frostbite. Yeah, And February, funny enough, is when Brian and I will be wearing hoodies. Mike will be chipping the ice off of his mustache. Well, it's funny. I will still be wearing a hoodie. I'll just be wearing it under my coat. <laughs> That's not even and a joke. Un- and, and over under, the thermals. And... Under the thermals, under the second hoodie, and on top of the electric blanket. That is, like, almost accurate. There are, like, two things in there that are not accurate. Like, it's coat, I, I question hoodies, the decision shirt, to thermals. put the electric blanket on the interior. <laughs> I, I have been gifted an electric scarf before so i could put a nine volt battery in there and wrap it around myself and let it drape down to my core but (laughs) there are just some things that are overkill (laughs) i almost bought some electric socks once well that just killed the conversation huh i'm just was imagining electric socks i'm like you know i can imagine behold i've created electric socks wow those will keep our feet nice and warm and the guy who invented them going oh yeah that's that's what they're for. It's not to make it, it's certainly not to make you go faster. That's stupid. <laughs> well, moving on. If everyone's doing good, I say let's jump into Geek Out. Uh, who's going to start us off at this episode? Uh, I will. So it's been a it's been kind of a uh, lean month for geeky stuff. Um, I've been getting hitting a little bit harder on my, my training for possibly needing to change jobs. I'm on furlough again, so. Oh, stink. Sorry, man. Yeah. But I'm starting to learn a little bit of Unreal Engine, which gives me the option of transitioning into games if I decide to go that direction. But also, they're, they're doing a lot of uh, that virtual set stuff, like uh, if you saw the, the documentaries on the, the Mandalorian. Yes, love those. The first time I saw how they did the cave scene against the the Trandoshans and that virtual mm-hmm. set that wrapped around, that blew my mind. I didn't even know such a thing was possible. See, and that's yeah. the thing is I I watched the, the documentaries and went back and re-listened to our episode on The Mandalorian where you had brought up the environment that they were filming in. And I just couldn't believe that they were filming against these LED screens as their background. Mm-hmm. And it was just incredible. And to see how they had done all of the parallax tracking with the cameras and everything, it was, yeah, it was mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Well, my, my current employer has potentially a, uh, 
a contract with a stage doing that kind of thing uh, to serve as their primary VFX vendor. So, and that's all run on Unreal Engine um, for the, the real-time rendering. So anything that I learned about that can be folded back into the current job I'm doing, or it gives me more options uh, if I want to move into games or get involved in another virtual production uh, company. You know, um, EA did announce that they're going to do a digital remaster of the Mass Effect series. Just oh, to, really? Just going to throw that out there for you. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. There's a contract coming up that I wish I could tell you about that I am just, I'm geeking out hard about, but I... I'm under NDA and it's not a done mm -hmm. deal. And it's like, but if it happens, I'm going to be squeeing at you guys. We'll just, uh, you know what? We'll give you half months. the entire show. <laughs> if it's, if it's that cool, if it's that awesome, uh, you can just take half the, the entire geek out is yours. Well, see, this is the thing is since he's under the NDA, that, that doesn't stop both of us about, uh, I mean, James and I from just sitting throwing here out and just, speculation. Right. Let's just like, we didn't like, wow. I didn't know that the Dresden files were coming to film. This is amazing. <laughs> They're finally releasing an MMORPG set in the Babylon five universe. How awesome <laughs> that is cool. this going to be? Oh, dang it. I want to play that now. <laughs> I know. So do I. <laughs> Brian, quiet you can't say that you're under nda geez right <laughs> there's a uh was a total conversion for a game i liked called uh, independence war 2 uh that converted all the ships into babylon 5 ships that's right i really love playing that i remember you showed it to me one time and i flew around in a narn cruiser trying mm -hmm. desperately to turn left because it was based on real world physics <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, and you find out that those those really slow pulse cannon things that the Star Furies shoot are freaking impossible to hit anything with when you're six kilometers away from it. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right, time to go on a firing run. Boom, boom, boom. I fired my weapons. Slow turn. Half an hour later, another firing run. <laughs> I'm tired. Let's order pizza. <laughs> right. Uh so yeah, Unreal Engine, and I've been getting into a little bit of uh, shader writing for those who are not familiar with that, which I presume is probably everybody. Uh, a shader is the little computer program that determines what color a pixel should be based on the material that it is and what kind of light is striking it. Um, and you can do other things. You can make patterns and, and custom textures and effects with them. So Wow. So it determines whether it's blue and black or gold and whatever other color it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that's based on the, the angle of incidence between the, the camera, the lights, the material it's made out of the environment that's surrounding it, whether or not it's getting, it's reflective or not uh, how rough it is, that sort of thing. Which is gotcha. funny because it's stuff that your brain does automatically all the time based on context. Mm -hmm. but and... Instead we have to write million dollar software to, to make a computer do it. Well, right. are you going to donate your brain to that computer to make those judgments? Because well, that gets messy. Not a second time. <laughs> For all those yeah, people who watched Superman 3 and thought, that looks like a fun idea. Oh, yeah. Wow, I just recently yeah, rewatched that scene. Nothing about Superman 3 was a good idea. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> Wait, why did you rewatch Superman 3? 
I didn't. I just watched that scene. I think that oh, okay. uh, I think that Francisco Ruiz had mentioned that this scene terrified me as a child. Uh, Francisco Ruiz oh, from uh, yeah. Retro Rewind podcast. Um, because we, you we know, got our plug in for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> we are getting no money from them, people. This is just what happens. We're just fans. <laughs> But I'm right there with him as a kid that scared me to death. Yeah, me too. I'm like, wow, this seems vaguely familiar. I should rewatch that. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that I remember that scene happening. So, (laughs) all right. So, uh, also, uh, Magic the Gathering Online, or no, Magic the Gathering Arena, because there's actually two computer games for Magic the Gathering, which is confusing. Arena recently released uh, Amonkhet Remastered. Which Amonkhet was a Egyptian themed set from I want to say four years ago, um, which I never got to play because I wasn't playing Magic the Gathering at that point. But it's it's very flavorful and it's got a lot of interesting concepts in it. Uh, and they just re re released that set into Magic the Gathering Arena, uh, so we could play with that. And they've got a couple of uh, uh, limited events going on, sealed deck or uh, draft. And so I played the sealed deck event this week, and that set is just fun. Is this the set that has uh, the dragon god, Nicholas Bola? Uh, he didn't originate there. He's actually from way, way back in a set oh, okay. called Legends. Uh, but yeah, Nicol Bolas is... I'm not real clear on the lore, but I think he is the god pharaoh of Amonkhet. And he, he kind of took over the entire plane in order to use it to build up an army for something else. Gotcha. Uh, <clears throat> but in the in the limited format where you're not you don't have access to like all of the cards that you own, it's like five packs or something that you get to to build a deck out of. Um, I found that every match was like this little puzzle where instead of you know just trying to overwhelm your opponent with a combo or something, it was okay. Well, if I attack this turn, I need to think about what's going to happen three turns from now as a result of uh, all of the intricacies of the cards and the the boosters that I've got in my hand um, and how things are going to play out over two turns away instead of what's going to happen just right now. It's It's been a really interesting experience, except when someone plays the Scarab God, because once that card hits the table the game is over. It's ridiculously powerful. And I hated seeing it twice in a row during my (laughs) event. So that's all I've got to say. Okay. Well, then I guess I'll go next. I think it's interesting that we've both had kind of light geekery months, because I think that that's kind of described where I've been as well, too. But our family has started watching the Umbrella Academy. And it was one of those things where Kaja had said, oh, season two is out. And we're like, yeah, so she's like, yeah, we got to watch it. Like, we've never seen this before. You guys have seen the Umbrella Academy. Like, we all just like three of us in course. <laughs> no, we have not. Like, I couldn't possibly have been the one just watching this on my own. Like, we do not remember this thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to start episode one. And we started watching. We have not seen this thing. And so <laughs> to get us to season two, we started watching season one. And I thought that was was a really interesting uh, exploration of of these superheroes that have fallen apart over the years. The premise is that there are these children that were all uh, apparently miraculously conceived and born on the same day, 
which is, you know, nine months is, is too short a time to prepare for a baby as it is. So when somebody has 20 minutes notice, this is, this is difficult on them. Uh, <laughs> and apparently somebody had adopted as many of these children that were born on this day as they could, which happened to be seven, and uh, decided to train them because they were obviously miraculous children. They all had superpowers. And it was a matter of training them to be a superhero squad. And things did not go as planned. And I don't know what the comic was like. It was originally a Dark Horse comic. And the way that it turned out in the TV show is that this was an emotionally distant father figure. And really all he cared about was training their studies. And he wanted them to be good people, but wasn't really interested in emotionally investing so what the x-men would have turned into if professor x was just awful <sighs> i don't even think you need to be awful you just need to be not good no he was as a father yeah as a father he was awful as a human being he was ignorant and and yeah so these people kind of emotionally are stunted while they're trying to come together at the end of the world to try to figure out how to stop the end of the world from happening. And you know, it's not really that I don't want to give any spoilers for season one, but it was, it was kind of a funny thing that when we were, when we were watching it, these heroes have decided that they're going to attack the thing that they think is the impetus for the apocalypse. And it seemed like a really bizarre move. Like, you know, it's possible. Like if Jean-Luc Picard was there, he would be saying, well, for all we know, it would be our intervention at this point that causes the apocalypse. I say patience. <laughs> and I mean, that's exactly the thing is like, we've seen a couple of times, if they do nothing, the apocalypse doesn't happen. They give us an episode that shows what would have happened in the day that wasn't. And so they decide to go on the attack. And my daughter was like, why are they going on the attack? And I'm like, this really is all their father has trained them to do. Identify a problem and attack it. That's how you solve your problems. If you're not punching your problems, if you're not solving your problems by punching them, you're not hitting them hard enough. <laughs> and so it was, it was interesting to watch that journey. And the end of season one brings you right into season two, but it, it looks like they're doing a lot of things in season two to just give us a hard reset so that, all of this growth that we have in this character or this character is just reset by amnesia. Aww. And they're having to stop the apocalypse instead of in 2019. You missed by one year, folks. Uh, they're having <laughs> they're having to stop it in 19 in the 1960s, which they themselves are kind of aware that they're causing the apocalypse, but they don't know what of their time meddling has caused the apocalypse. So there's kind of back to square one. It's in 10 days. We don't know how we caused it, but we got to stop it. And I'm like, you know, that's a little too much like season one, but okay. Okay. All right. Fine. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see where you go with this. I may watch the rest of the season. I may not. I have to admit when I first saw that the first advertisement of that, I was really hoping that it was going to be an adaptation of Shadow Pact from DC Comics because I saw that chimp and I thought, is it Detective Chimp? That would be awesome. And then it wasn't. And. I was disappointed, so I never really gave it a chance. It's interesting, but it's not. I've never seen this detective chimp, but now I feel like I really missed out. He's a really minor character in, in DC Comics, but he showed up 
pretty significantly in one of the big uh, crisis series oh. where uh, he leads. There, there was a side plot where magic is dying. And so Detective Chimp is like Sherlock Holmes as a chimpanzee. That's his entire shtick leads a squad of magically powered superheroes, even though he's not a magician of any of any kind, to try and reignite magic. And it was a really interesting side story in that event. Wait, I do remember seeing an issue with him, and he was giving Constantine just all manner of grief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you talk about his whole shtick is he's a Sherlock Holmes as a chimpanzee, it got me thinking, that's actually a lot more simple and less convoluted than many DC character <laughs> histories. Yep. See, that was that was a lot more productive than what I was going to say. I, I was just going to note, I was I was hung up on your phrase that magic is dying. So I just did a quick Google search to check on how Magic Johnson was doing. And so, okay, he's okay. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. If they're going to ever turn that into a TV show, whether it's on Netflix or whoever... He really should be voiced by, oh, what's his name? Um, Binderwack Crimply Buns. And I say that, and you both know who I'm talking about. I'm kind of preoccupied with the fact that, dude, you're talking about the plot of Detective Chimp saving Magic Johnson, and Brian can't talk about this due to the NDA. You're absolutely right. We guessed it. How weird. And that's how I derailed my own geek out. I'm not sorry. <laughs> Oh, do you have anything else? You know, the only other thing that's going on in my in my geekery is that I'm I kind of got tired of the same masks that I'm wearing every day. You know, there's a few that are kind of my favorite, but they're not really distinctive or interesting. They're just they're nice and they're comfortable. So I got on Etsy and decided to go just a little bit crazy. And um, I purchased some Starfleet masks. Yeah. Yeah, they're. <laughs> They're modeled after the next gen uniforms, and you can even tell the Etsy creator how many pips you want on the side of it. So, so what rank are you, Admiral? <laughs> uh, actually, I chose Commander. I mean, I, I didn't want to shoot too high. Nice, it's just nice. And yeah, we, we got one blue and one red, and I think that we're going to get a couple more just because these masks are just they they're comfortable we got one of the pleated ones and then we got kind of one of the the form-fitted ones that that kind of come up in the middle for for your schnoz and then are contoured to go along the cheek line but i have such a a long narrow face that the pleated ones fit me best like i can wear other things but i'm as i'm trying a couple of these new styles you know, I like the pleated best, so I'm just like, okay, give me science officer blue and give me another command red, and and we're golden. I don't know. Maybe I should get a gold one. Absolutely. You <laughs> should get engineering. Yeah. So I also got a, a Legend of Zelda mask, which I thought was pretty cool, and I've got a no-face pattern one from uh, – no-face from Spirited Away getting shipped over from England. So that'll be Very coming. cool. Yeah. So geeky masks show my fandom while, you know, keeping my germs to myself. <laughs> well, for my geek out, I will continue in the vein of uh, geeky face protection. I forgot I had these, honestly. I bought them because I thought there was the possibility that we were going to have an SCA event sometime this month. And the kibosh got put on that when it was handed down from the SCA board of directors that all activity has been delayed until after January 2021. Okay. Yep. yep. 
But in the meantime, I got on Etsy as well, and I ordered a pair of neck gaiters, the cool neck sleeves. One of them, the fabric, has got a chainmail pattern on it, and the lower half of a uh, of a great helm to go over my face. All right. And the other one, which I like even more, has a repeating pattern of a medieval illustration of a rabbit on the back of a snail and the snail oh. has a man's face and he has a shield and lance and he's facing off against a dog who's on the back of a rabbit with spear and lance and in gothic letters says six feet back <laughs> <laughs> i'm thinking like you know what i'm just gonna start wearing this one to work because i love yeah, it yeah awesome uh beyond the face protection Uh, Like the three of you, I thought that this month was going to be super lean. And then as I began looking at what have I been geeking out to uh, within like the past 24 hours, I'm like, oh, I guess I do have a few things that I've been geeking out to. Finally, have had some free time to sit down and watch something with my wife. And I introduced her to Star Trek Discovery. Namely, I introduced her to season two because season one is a giant pile of drama that is thrown at you that I just didn't feel like waiting through. Okay, so Jeff Goldblum walks up and says, that's one big pile of drama. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. (laughs) So I got the Cliff's Notes versions of what happened in season one. I gave it to Joy. And we started with season two, which introduces us to Captain Christopher Pike and the USS Enterprise. And he is so fantastic. The gentleman who plays Pike is so great that it's no surprise at all that they decided to give him and the Enterprise their own show. I think it's called Star Trek uh, Strange New World, and it's set right now to begin uh, shooting in 2021. So that one can't get here fast enough. But uh, we're down to the last two episodes of Discovery Season 2. I've really been enjoying it. Joy has really been enjoying it. Um, She said it's some of the best Star Trek she thinks she's ever watched. And I'm also excited because season three is set to premiere, I believe, in October. So not that long of a turnaround time for us, at least. And in the meantime, I have been moderately enjoying the new Star Trek series. The first time since... The 70s, we've had an animated Star Trek show, and that is Star Trek Lower Decks. Oh, I want to know. I saw the trailers for that, and it looked so funny. I think it is pretty funny. Joy was kind of so-so about it, which is perfectly fine. I have been enjoying it. As of this podcast, they've just aired two episodes, and the animation style and the speed of the comedy and the the pacing of the show is going to remind a lot of people about the currently very popular cartoon Rick and Morty, which I have watched very little of, don't have a lot of interest in. That being said, thankfully the humor is not very Rick and Morty-esque, at least. I don't think so. In fact, I thought it was it had a lot in kin with Futurama. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. You can tell the people who are behind this, the writers, every single one is a huge Star Trek nerd because of the amount of Easter eggs and reference dropping that they do throughout, especially in the first episode, which doesn't surprise me because they're really trying to reel you in. It, it centers around this California-class starship, the USS Cerritos, which is like this smaller support ship, like one that you would see in Star Trek The Next Generation Season 4, Episode 8, for like two minutes. Or you'd see it busted in half because it was destroyed by the Borg. Not very important. And it's the type of starship that 
the writers said that this isn't the ship that would get first contact. They would get second contact to set up all the communication stuff, make sure they've got the planet's name spelled right, and to find out where all the good places to eat are. <laughs> and even then, for the first time, it doesn't focus on the captain and the command crew. I mean, they're present because they're the command crew, but you know how Star Trek usually has a as a classic, you know, we have an A plot, a B plot, and a C plot yeah. uh, running throughout their episodes? Okay, the A plot revolves around a group of ensigns who work on like the bottom deck of the ship. And then the B plot is usually what's happening with the ship itself. And the C plot might involve something with a member of the command crew. See, that's one of the things that I, I kind of got the sense was was the, was the spirit of the show. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of the book Red Shirts, where you're following the people who are who are considered a disposable crew <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to the main plot. And it sounded like it was, I mean, it was going to stay completely in universe, unlike the way that, well, I mean, you, you should definitely read Red Shirts, certainly. But it mm -hmm. sounded like this stayed completely in universe and was very Star Trek. And it was, it, it's it's set during Next Gen, correct? It's set uh, just a little bit after the last Star Trek Next Generation movie, Nemesis. So 2380. And the fact that it's by CBS and the people they've assembled could very well mean that this thing is officially canon. Um, yeah, it's so long as it's enjoyable. I don't care if it's canon or not. Same here. Star, yeah, Trek's Star Trek, always... what's canon anyway? Yeah, I mean... exactly. They shot that out of the photon <laughs> torpedo tubes a long time ago. But there's always been a lot in Star Trek, which would be perfect use for, uh, for some silliness. And Trek humor is a very unique thing. Anytime they've tried to go over to just have a bit of silly humor, it's usually backfires horrendously. But this show is trying to do a bit of that. I've found it very funny at times. Just a bit of warning because this is like the new type of Star Trek, like Discovery and more. You're going to find more language in it than you've ever heard in a Star Trek series. The worst of it, they bleep out. But still, I'm like, uh, guys, you guys watch Star Trek Picard, right? I did. Uh, I have only seen the first episode, and now okay. I've only got like five days left to get through the rest of it. Get to cracking, dude. <laughs> so yeah, there's language here and there. A little bit of like what you would call adult humor. Not horrible. Keep in mind, I've only watched two episodes so far. I mean, the worst that I've witnessed was these two incidents are given the task of transporting this famous Klingon general down to a planet. And while one is trying to kiss up to him, the other one attacks him because, you know, they're old friends. And while they're laughing, the Klingon goes, allow me to tell you of my many sexual conquests. And the ensign replies, what, both of them? Okay. I mean, if that's the worst that it is, then, you know. But no matter what happens, the series continues to remind you that it's still Star Trek. Without giving, well, it's not too much of a spoiler, but one of the plots in the second episode is that this one ensign who loves engineering, he loves running diagnostics. I mean, crawling through a Jeffrey's tube for a week, calibrating all of the EPS grid, that's heaven to him. He loves it. In fact, we first see him in the episode after he gets done doing that exact same thing. <laughs> this other ensign wants to spend some time with him because she wants a friend to watch this pulsar he's like oh well I, I i guess i can't do that but well i guess i could if you know i completely changed my career and got out of engineering and she's like oh that'd be great thanks and he goes okay yeah <laughs> guess i'm guess i'm changing my career and so he goes to engineering and it's like hey um can i talk to you and the chief engineer's like you're my best guy of course i got time for you so 
I'm thinking about pursuing other things. And the chief engineer's face gets dark. What are you telling me? Are you saying what I think you're saying? I'd like a transfer, sir. Transfer. Approved. Hey, man, good luck out there. I'm proud of you. You know, it's always something on the horizon. Go find out what works for you. And all the engineers are cheering him. Yeah, woo, yeah, buddy, way to go. He then leaves he goes, and then things fall apart, don't they? Well, he goes and tries command. And after a pair of command holographic scenarios, which end with the entire pre-K and kindergarten classrooms on the ship being jettisoned into space. <laughs> <laughs> He decides to give medical a try. Like, look, you do really well with the body. And he's like, yeah, the, the heart's just basically an engine. And the, and the eyes are smaller engines. No, not engines. No, wait, cameras, cameras, they're cameras. And she's like, great. <laughs> well, hey, come over here. This guy's hurt real bad, but we're working on him. Just talk to him. Keep him calm. And the guy's like, am I going to live? He's like, oh, yeah, don't worry. My implant tells me you've only got like an 18% chance of death. I'm going to die. Whoa, that just jumped to 20. I'm going to die. Dude, you need to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> and so true. And, and it just keeps going downhill from there till the chief medical officer, who uh, I think Kaja will enjoy this, is a grizzled female Cation, which is a cat person. And oh my she, gosh. She looks like this 15 year old tabby who has been living on the street and is just fed up with everybody. Okay, they've been needing to bring that species back ever since the original animated Star Trek. Oh, yeah. So then this young ensign, he goes to uh, security and this chief security officer says, We're going to find out what you're made of. Computer run program smorgasbord and like 25 <laughs> borg appear around this poor guy he's like i don't know how to fight wait maybe my implant by the way he has an ocular implant in one eye and part of his face because i don't know how to fight maybe this thing does and he clicks it and suddenly targeting rectangles appear on all the borg and it like takes over his body and he just starts tearing through them while going woo yeah yeah <laughs> and the chief by the prophets you're a natural born killer and the guy goes okie dokie <laughs> oh no <laughs> so he decides that you know the jeffrey's tubes are calling him and he wants to go back to it and when he tells the chief security officer that i've got to do what i want to do i'm going to try to get back into engineering and you think the security officer is going to rip him a new one i am proud of you boy way to be true to yourself let's hear it for him everyone yay and everyone applauds him again oh my gosh i'm like wow it's cheesy but gosh that actually does sound like starfleet <laughs> i mean do uh, you know what I, people tell me cheesy as a criticism but like sometimes you just want some cheese i mean i like brie a lot so don't tell me to turn my nose at it because it's cheesy <laughs> <laughs> so i recommend if you've got younger kids even though it's a cartoon don't let younger kids watch otherwise you're gonna have to be explaining a couple of situations and words to them but if you've got preteen, teen and older you know, I'd say like 11, 12 to 70, then you're going to have a fun time. I want to talk but, about these 70 year old children. But anyway, moving on, <laughs> moving on, moving on. That's going to be us in a indeterminate number of years doing episode 782, still talking about Star Trek. I can see but, that happening. Uh, besides Star Trek, as I said, I thought that this was going to be a lean month, but then I kept on finding other things that I had been geeking out to. Things that I haven't been able to dive into a lot, but I've got them. Like uh, recently, my wife and I just celebrated our 16th anniversary. 
And uh, August is a expensive month for us. Besides it being all three children's birthdays, it's also our anniversary and also when school begins. So Christmas has got nothing on the month of August. <laughs> but based on your recommendation, Mike, I had put this into my Amazon wish list. And my wonderful wife got it for me, and I can't wait to break it open. But I am holding a copy of uh, Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Oh, yeah. And I'm really looking forward to tearing the plastic off it and getting a chance to play it. So in addition to that, I've had a couple of books, one that I bought and one that my wonderful wife bought for me. And once again, I have them. I'm trying to get into them and give them the attention that they deserve. It hasn't happened yet, but one of them is the Medieval Art of Swordsmanship from the Royal Armories, their book of MS-133. That is a is beautiful book. Just, just gorgeous and fantastic. I'm like, oh, I want a sword and buckler now. I'm adding it to the list. The introduction <laughs> to that, the introduction is is worth the book all by itself. I'm currently in the introduction, and I'm not flying through it like i do so many other books i'm savoring this i'm enjoying it bit by bit get yourself a commentary to go along with it because as dr forgang is is more than pleased to tell you the purpose of the book is not to teach you how to do swordsmanship mm -hmm. when they were when they were writing and illustrating books in the medieval time they didn't write books for the same purposes that we author and own books if we have a, a manual that shows how something is done, it's because we expect that the reader will learn how to do it from our writing. But that was never the assumption when the authors were, were putting MS-133 together. It makes yeah. a statement about your love of the activity, and it says something about your status, that you can own something that takes the commissioning of scribes and scholars to put it together but it doesn't tell you in a modern sense or a contemporary sense. It doesn't tell you how to make a real-life application of what you see in the plates and in the illustrations. Right. Uh, it distills which, the knowledge, but yeah. it doesn't... It tells yeah. you the origin. It tells you the history of it, where it was made, who might have worked on it, and so much more. But, yeah. Moving on to practical application, the other book that... I have is The Art of the Rapier, a manual for today's fencers by Dr. Ken Monshine. Have we mentioned him on the podcast before? Uh, I don't know. We'll have to go back through the show notes. Probably um, like once or twice a minute for like the last 70 episodes. Or something. Five anyway. times. I don't know. Uh, it is great stuff. I mean, you want to take some of the, the great works by rapier masters such as Agrippa, Fabris, Giganti, and Capoferro and just distilled them down to their core for practical use. This is it. And I've only been able to skim this, and it is an enjoyable read. If you have any interest in historical fencing, you want to up your game or just broaden your horizons, go on Amazon and check it out. It really serves as a great foundation to understanding in contemporary terms how to approach this as a discipline before you go to to go to period manuals and try to understand period manuals on your own. Yeah. And because there's so many different uh, styles represented here, this could help you narrow down which one works best for you. Yeah. And also just some some darn good advice for teaching and learning. I mean, it's it's, mm -hmm. it's a pretty incredible book. That's going to wrap it up for my geek out. It was actually a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. So, <laughs> yeah. Pop quiz. Pop quiz. I have one. So... 
Supposing that you were, uh, you just got your spot in the henchman's union, what fictional villain would you be, want to be working for? Ooh. Hmm. Wow, that is a question, because who do I work for that wouldn't absolutely terrify me of getting killed on my first day of work, say, you know, Joker? <laughs> you know, I'm going to go Poison Ivy. Uh, Why Poison she, Ivy? Poison Ivy is because she, I, I mean, though her methods are are certainly very destructive, at least she has a principled goal. She's an eco-terrorist. So what she wants to do is stick it to the people who are sticking it to the environment. And I think that she actually has the potential to be to be more anti-hero than villain, even though she is typically portrayed as a villain. But the fact that she actually has some redeemable, if not, you know, she has some redeemable qualities despite some sinister applications. Yeah. This may come as a shock, but I'm going to say Lex Luthor. <laughs> That's exactly where I was going to go. I thought that you would. What's um, your reasoning? True. Is he an egomaniacal, super intelligent villain? Yeah. But if I'm working for LexCorp, I've got a great 401k plan. I've got dental. <laughs> I've got vision. I've got merit-based raises. There's going to be a lot of opportunities, including knocking someone off for internal promotion. <laughs> it doesn't even matter if my workplace gets demolished by an alien invasion or a superpowered fight, because within a week or the next issue of that comic, my workplace is going to be rebuilt and I've got somewhere to report to 8 a.m. on Monday morning. So it's the fact that you've got the lawful part of the lawful evil, that at least he's giving you a reliable structure that's dependable. And you know that the uh, superhero that's most likely to come knocking is not going to kill you. Exactly. Oh, that is a good point. Yeah, and he doesn't like collateral yeah. damage. No, he doesn't. Honestly, if he shows up again, it's like, it's like, oh, hey, James. Hey, Superman. Uh, third door on the right. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I already knew. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. X-ray vision. Okay, yeah. See you next week. Oh, oh by, the, <laughs> by the way, uh, the guy who's been repairing doors is out sick. Rather than busting that one down, here's your fob. Mm -hmm. And then I just say, yes, Mr. Luther. Yeah, I told him third door on the right, just like you said. Yep. See you Monday. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll use my fallback then. Uh, now, I kind of just dismissed all of the uh, Batman rogues gallery because smart for the most part, they're all nuts. Uh, but poison Ivy, that's a good choice. My uh, number two after that would be two face. Cause at least with him, you've got a 50, 50 chance. <laughs> right. See, and, and my, my education on Batman is largely relying on Batman, the animated series. So there's probably other comics out there that might make me change my mind, but you know, it's my media I've consumed. Yeah, so if you did go, right. if you did serve under the so Joker, I think I'm going to go with Magneto. Oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Because yeah. if you're a Magneto henchman, that would you're make guaranteed you to have useful it? powers. And he's going to respect your decision to protect yourself. You know, it's funny. A friend of mine had posted or, or reposted something that said, me in my youth, Magneto was right. Like me is in, my, in my 20s. You know, as much as I understand Magneto's motivations and his history, Professor X had the more enlightened, proper path forward. Me now. Magneto was Magneto right! Was... <laughs> <laughs> I'm experiencing that with Disney movies with my, with my children. They watch uh, The Little Mermaid and the line where Ariel goes, I'm 16 years old. I'm not a child anymore. I'm like, girl, yes, you are. 
<laughs> she is you so listen, problematic. You, you listen to your father. You get your fins to your room right now. <laughs> have I have I told you that I want to see Disney's A Little Mermaid re-envisioned in avant-garde theater where Ariel is actually just deluded and all of these people that she perceives as acting against her are actually working in her best interest and it's only her delusion that makes her think that her father's against her oh no the sea witch is trying to do this to me oh no this guy who's actually really engaged to somebody else honest to goodness is being persuaded by the sea witch oh no i mean i i think that that story I think that story plays so much better than than what we have in that movie. Wow. I mean, granted, that story's problematic, but at least it's hanging mm-hmm. a lantern on the fact that it's problematic. <laughs> like, Ariel, no, you've got issues here that we need to sort out. <laughs> For the next pop quiz, which Disney villain would you like to work under? <laughs> hmm. Well, that's not very poppy of that quiz now, is it? study ahead folks yeah well i think that that will take us to our main topic and that is the final uh review our final movie for our superhero movies but aren't a part of the big two dc marvel film club and this movie that we watched a mouthful of a title isn't it quite (laughs) this movie well not really even a movie but this production is pretty legendary and that's when i feel like we can actually apply to it because it's not so much a movie as it kind of came an internet phenomenon and that is dr horrible's sing-along blog it was an online musical comedy drama miniseries that came out back in 2008 i can remember finding it when just after the second of the two acts came out there are three acts total the second one came out i watched the first one watched the second one and then i felt like i was biting my nails in horrible anticipation for the third one because of how incredibly new different and awesome this little web series was but before we jump into it too deep to give you a little bit of information about it it was a series that was created by uh, the whedon brothers primarily joss whedon of buffy firefly the avengers fame Uh, along with his two brothers, Zach and Jed. And if you are a geek and have been paying any type of attention to the media and the online community in the last few months, you know that Joss Whedon is uh, currently the center of some controversy right now. So before we jump into the production itself, we want to address that. And I I would like to say it is, it seems to be, as you said, a little bit of controversy in it. And it does seem to be a little bit. I mean, we're not... I'm not trying to paint it as small. Uh, I was. I'm not trying well, to dis- be dismissive of it. That was just possibly poor phrasing. Well, I don't. I don't know because it is. It's not something that is exploding all over the internet. It isn't. It isn't going to be national news. It isn't. It's not going to be in the papers or on everyone's Twitter. There is some question that was raised, um, but I think in the context of you know where you want to take this, I think that it is. I think that's yeah. It's a, it's a fine thing to to say. Okay, this is a thing. Mm-hmm. And to give some some context around what's actually been said and what's going on, um, following the Justice League media parade, uh, Ray Fisher, who played Cyborg, uh, has accused Whedon of unprofessional conduct. Um, he hasn't said specifically what happened. Uh, he says he's under NDA, can't discuss what happened on set. So 
all we have is Whedon treated me and treated some other people poorly. There are a couple of other people have piled on since then to corroborate that he's not really a very nice person sometimes. And then there were some circumstances around Charisma Carpenter's exit from Angel, uh, apparently. And I'm this is coming from memory. I didn't look it up again, but she had become pregnant and didn't inform the production until it was too late to rewrite some of her storylines. Um, and Joss apparently pitched a little bit of a fit. And uh, that was the reason that Cordelia was suddenly in a coma and then written out of the show eventually. Based on interviews that that they've both given, they seem to have mended some fences, but it's it's hard to say. And then his I, ex-wife made some accusations, which, of course, we can't really see into somebody else's marriage. Yeah, and I think that, um, I mean, before before we go too much, what do people say after after a relationship and, and so forth? I guess it raises the question, like, what what do we do when we have these content creators whom we see behaving in fashions that are are less than we had hoped? Um, mm -hmm. And larger questions, I'm, I'm not speaking specifically of, of Joss Whedon in this, in, in this instance, what do we do when information drops that, oh, one of the content creators on this big project is really not holding standards of, of morality on any planet that we've seen at all whatsoever or would ever want to visit? Um, so because there's the, because this comes up quite a bit when I don't want to get too deeply into this broader topic. So I think that we could, we could explore this, uh, and I don't know that we're the best people to, but it, I think that we should at least raise the question, what do we do when we see our content creators that are, that are failing the, the golden standard we'd like to see them, them hold. Right. And the. The tendency, the, the the calls on Twitter are always cancel them, you know, boycott everything that they've ever been involved with. And that has some some problems because in the case of somebody like Joss Whedon, his salary from Avengers was gigantic. Us saying, oh, well, we're not going to, to watch Dr. Horrible sing along blog because that'll give money to, to somebody who's did something that we don't like. He's not going to notice. Mm -hmm. But somebody like Felicia Day, who I'm sure the bulk of her income is from these smaller royalties of all of these, these little things that she's done. It could hurt her quite a bit. Or her web series that she has done, which this is one mm -hmm. of them. Yeah. Right. And so you can, you can say, well, we're going to, we're going to boycott stuff that this guy's been involved in and not hurt the person that you're actually aiming that at, but you're going to hurt dozens of other people who are relying on that income. And honestly, we're, we're all guilty of wrongdoing to one degree or another. It's it's up to you where you want to draw the line on how much, how far is too far, and I'm sure some people say, oh well, the things that that Whedon's been accused of, I just can't can't get behind, and other somebody else might say, well, that's not really that big a deal to me. Um, you've got to make that determination for yourself. But regardless of where you where you fall on that, I think that I would hope that there's mercy available for all of us. I mean. If I'm going to be judged by the worst thing that I ever did and my entire reputation and future income possibilities are going to be based on that, I am quite frankly screwed, you know, and yeah. I think probably that's going to be the case for all of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is the reality that, yes, we have all seen segments of ourselves that are not the best, the best possible. I do want to be careful sometimes when we say, okay, well, there's there's mercy and there's grace and there's hope for redemption. 
because that was the key phrase that some of the leaders in my denomination were using right when the clergy abuse scandal was coming out. And I'm like, hmm. yeah, grace and mercy. That's awesome. And you defrock that guy now because yeah. there is, <laughs> yeah, there is, absolutely. because it, I mean, one of the things that I, I feel good about in our denomination, as much as I, here I am saying it on the air, I, I do have some problems with the institutionalization of, of religion. Sometimes it has this good old, old boys buddy mentality, but so far the people that I've, I've been connected to in the organization are all about, you know, we, we stand together, we have each other's backs. Um, but if you're trying to use your position for abuse, there's the door. And many of you, there's a cell door for you. And that's, that's fine. Um, yeah. May, may, may God redeem you um, while you are never allowed to, to abuse, use your position to abuse people again. Um, so I don't, I don't want this segment to say, okay, no, ev everything's okay. And just go in peace because, you know, I think that people who are in power, no, I like uh, power structures in general. Um, we should keep them accountable. Mm -hmm. And if you're, and we should disrupt the enabling of destructive behavior. And also at the same time, recognizing that those individuals who, who may abuse power, I'm not speaking of Joss Whedon right now. I want to be that clear, but this is generally <laughs> mm -hmm. people who abuse power also tend to be supported by individuals who are truly talented and do depend on these forms of media for their income. So let's recognize the people that have, that have worked despite the harm and despite the abuse under them and support those individuals while saying, let's be destructive of those toxic structures and keep the people in power ac accountable. That, that's, yes. that's where I'm, that's where I'm um, at. Yeah. How do we do that? I, I don't know. I think that once I am the tyrannical despot of this world, I will, f I will cure the sickness that is in the human race <laughs> with my freeze ray. That's... Anyway, sorry, sorry, sorry. The status is not quo. <laughs> the world is messed up and I just need to need rule to it. Rule it. <laughs> so now that we're quoting this movie, um, so all that to say, we discussed on whether or not we wanted to do uh, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog because of the controversy surrounding Joss Whedon, but we looked at all the other people and all their hard work, uh, the likes of his brothers, of Marissa uh, Tencherowen, of the people who over six days poured their heart and soul into their roles, Neil Patrick Harris, Nathan Fillion, Felicia Day, and we decided that we were still going to continue with it. And if you have not seen Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, go check it out. It's a unique piece of geek media and culture that really, I think, started something new and showed that online media content could be something cool and great and awesome. Uh, to give a short bit of background on it, it was something that was dreamt up during a uh, writer strike, and they decided, you know, just in-house, let's make this little story about a guy who wants to be a budding supervillain. He wants to join the Evil League of Evil, and for some reason, he does an online blog. And let's make it <laughs> and and let's make it a musical. Because and, obviously musical. And you're welcome. <laughs> yes, and you're welcome. <laughs> and yeah. they released the first act in 2008 
to give you an idea of how instantly popular it became, uh, they had like this big, giant, awesome server that was prepared to handle the viewing load. They were getting a thousand hits a second, and it crashed the server. And, and in 2008 terms, that's huge. I mean, right now that's Zoom, but you know, that's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this was something that no nobody would have ever expected at the time, and they really didn't do any digital marketing for this. Mm-mm. It was they, really all grassroots effort. They the the production was trying to play catch up to what the fan base was doing. Yeah, they released a trailer, and that was it. That's yeah, all they, they did was yeah, release and, that one trailer. And they didn't really have a lot of avenues for advertising because the people that the writers were striking against were the networks. Mm-hmm. So the networks certainly were going, to, were going to run advertisements for the writers subverting the system. <laughs> so, uh, as I said, it stars uh, Neil Patrick Harris as the young man named Billy, also known as Dr. Horrible. Uh, it has Nathan Fillion as the actual superhero, Captain Hammer. Ooh. And yes, <laughs> all manner of boo. But I give him full props for his outstanding performance in the show. And finally, Felicia Day as just a delightful young lady, which she always is. So why this film? I mean, we're going to call it a film. It's not a film, but right yeah. now it's a film. Until the end of the episode, because it's a film. I already gave a, a mouthful <laughs> about trying to explain what we were doing before, and I'm not changing the film club name. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, this was a wonderful breath of fresh air, a wonderful change of pace where we get to explore a narrative where the protagonist does not have any superhero powers. Unlike Mystery Man and the Rocketeer? Oh, quiet, you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's all we've done, isn't it? <laughs> like, apparently, DC and Marvel have have copyrighted superhero powers because you know if you you're know? not if you're outside the big two, you don't have them. <laughs> Just so we had someone with some actual powers, maybe we should have done Hellboy. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. there's, there's definitely an, an innocence to it um, that makes it a real nice contrast to other superhero films. Um, there's only so much into the world stuff that you can stand before you, you just kind of need a palate cleanser. Yes. Uh, it's the same sort of thing that made Shazam so good. It's just like, okay, this isn't taking itself terribly seriously. And I kind of need that right now. You got that right from the beginning too, because it, it doesn't start off with any explanation of what's going on. It just says Dr. Horrible sing along blog. And it goes right to Neil Patrick Harris going, ha 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 ha. Ha 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 ha. Ah, I'm working with a voice coach to, you know, work on my evil laugh. Ha ah, so it sets the stage, <laughs> though. I along. mean, it, yes, it, you know, it says that it doesn't have any explanation, but it does have explanation. The explanation is in the act. Like you see mm-hmm. somebody who's trying to be a supervillain, but he's not terribly good at it. And so he's getting <laughs> a voice coach and he's got a a blog and then. And, you know, and then he's answering emails, emails. Yes. <laughs> which are printed out, which he's holding with his welder's gloves. Like that tells you so much about this character without having to have a wordy exposition. Once again, don't tell show. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that's so great about this is that it shows so quickly, gets you up to speed so quickly. I did steal the gold bars, holds up a bag of liquid. I just... 
didn't arrive. Molecules oh, shifted in, in, in during the transit. Yeah, it's, it smells like human. <laughs> Just a beautiful line. Who Which I didn't catch the first time I watched it all those years ago. I'm sitting next to Joy on the couch, and he's he's poking it, and he's like, smells like human. And I die because I didn't remember that bit. <laughs> One of the things that's that's great about this is, you know, we've we've talked on this show that we like stories with low stakes. This is pretty low stakes. There's no fate of the world. The framing for this is a job interview. Yeah. With a horse. Uh, <laughs> with a bad horse. <laughs> the thoroughbred of the sin. Thoroughbred of sin? Oh gosh, I love that. <laughs> And really, this this film is first and foremost an emotional journey with our protagonist. And it's not a superhero or a supervillain story. All of the superhero, supervillain stuff is is a vehicle for this emotional journey. Yeah. And when we meet him, like you said, he's not a supervillain at all. He's just Billy. And we meet him at the true crossroads of his life. Which way is he going to go down? Is he going to go down this this path that he has always dreamed about, he's blogged about, he's he's planned for and hoped for for so long, although it was done ineptly. But this is his his end goal to be a true supervillain, to be in the evil league of evil. Or is he going to go a different direction? And you see at various points throughout each act, he has many crossroad moments. Yeah, he has many crossroad moments. Do I do this or do I do that? Am I going to go the way of pursuing this this evil career, or am I going to go this other way that lies with Felicia Day's character, Penny? And feeding the homeless. And but feeding the tragically, homeless. he never seems to realize that that choice, that he's making a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is actually all too real. Right. Uh, uh, another thing that makes this such a refreshing change of pace is that when we're talking about a departure from the Marvel and DC scene, we can, you know, when you say a Marvel movie or a DC movie, you have these huge action packed effects laden scenes. And the most Marvel esque moment in this entire show is off screen. Like he, he tells you he's going to go and, and bring his freeze ray to the superhero bridge and captain hammer there, foils him by throwing a car at Dr. Horrible's head. The chief of police and Captain <laughs> Hammer are among my subscribers. This blog. <laughs> I need to be careful about they what were, I say. They were waiting for me. Captain Hammer threw a car at my face. And that's, <laughs> that would be, if we were doing a Marvel movie or a DC movie, that would be the thing we catch on screen. But mm-hmm. this we catch in just this kind of whimpering, pathetic aftermath of, Okay, I'm I'm back online and right, and they turned that limitation of their budget into an advantage and making this this scene really really funny and not having to spend all the money on visual effects. Mm-hmm. Exactly, it was delicious because we've seen all of those effects movies. We know what this looks like in our heads without mm-hmm. anything so complicated as yeah. having to block it or show it. Like you said, due to the big budget of Marvel and DC. Nothing really surprises us on screen anymore because of the the level of special effects that we've reached. But clever and good writing, we'll, we'll be happy for that every single time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of the things that makes this work is that uh, we're expecting that effect scene. We're not expecting this whimpering and beaten. Okay, so 
this was what happened in my day as yeah. the supervillain comes back, yeah. which yeah, is what makes it would, funny. The closest we would get is the Red Skull writing in his journal, Captain America was mean again to me this week. He destroyed <laughs> another one of my factories. <laughs> Why is he such a doom cough? <laughs> Another reason why I think we have to talk about this film, what makes this distinctive? I mean, no other superhero movie has music this catchy. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, John Williams. I love <laughs> Superman, but I can't sing that in the car. I so, can. Uh, <laughs> 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 I'm with Brian on this one. <laughs> but interestingly enough, I have on CD the Dr. Horrible sing-along blog soundtrack. And when I was going to pick up my daughter in Oklahoma, she'd spent some time with her grandparents. I, well, I didn't pop it in because my car doesn't have a CD player anymore, but I had it on my phone and I was listening to the music probably for the first time in over a decade. It's (laughs) still good. And it is still so good. Uh, The music that was created by... Jed Whedon and Marissa Tangaroan, just catchy, unique, and it sticks in your head. I'm trying to remember if the music itself actually won. I know, I know the series as a whole won several awards. Like it won a People's Choice Award. It, it won a Hugo, like a bunch of streamies. And in fact, the streamies may have been invented just because of this. <laughs> I know it won a Creative Arts Emmy as well and uh, i mean the acting was great but we we always talk about how music is such an important and integral part of any production i mean hey it's included in the title of the whole thing it's a sing-along blog so the music's got to be great and it it really did the thing that musicals are supposed to do which is use the music to help carry the story forward One thing that I think is very clumsy in a musical is somebody makes an observation or makes a point, and then they sing a song about that observation and point, and then the song is over, and then the narrative moves on. Here, the music is there to to be a vehicle for these emotional moments for the characters, most Mm -hmm. noticeably uh, Dr. Horrible, but also, uh, also the others. The action happens in part during these musical movements, which is good use of, of music in, a, in this type of media. It won Best Original Music in a Web Series from the Streamies, which that's specific enough that it was probably the only entry. <laughs> they, <laughs> they probably created the category just for Dr. Horrible's <laughs> sing-along blog. So I asked this of you, Mike, when we were discussing Hamilton, but I'm going to ask each of you guys, what is one song that stood out above all the others to you? I think I've been singing A Brand New Day. That's the one I'd pick, too. For me, it was Brand New Day followed closely by My Eyes. The one, one that Dr. Day Horrible... The and second pay- one for me. Yeah. yeah, My Eyes is probably in the top there with me, too. It's one of those other ones that I'll find myself singing after I've viewed the film. That one I don't fine caught in my head so much but the whole the the staging of that one and the way it develops it was probably my favorite yeah my favorite part of the show 
Agreed. And I want to give a shout out, especially to who I think is the unsung ha, musical <laughs> hero of this. And that's Felicia Day. We've seen her in everything from uh, the web series The Guild to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She's been on a lot of online content. Um, you never really heard Supernatural. You've never heard her really sing before this. Oh, she's phenomenally talented she, musically. She's from, well, I know that she's like a world-class violinist as well. Is she a violinist or a cellist? Violinist, I believe. When she was singing My Eyes, and she'd sung a little bit before, and she's kind of supposed to be presented as a very quiet, timid, kind of a mousy young lady. She starts singing My Eyes, and I'm like, girl, stop holding back. Belt it. Come on. Let loose with some of that inner Mariah Carey. No, actually, it, they, that was direction. That was direction okay. on their part. I believe it because it just it felt like she was just on the cusp of really just starting to let it go. And I heard so much potential in her voice. Like mm -hmm. this girl could really do something with her voice. She has got fantastic sound to her. Yeah, that's one of the things is that they when she was when she was singing this for the recording, there was some direction of, OK, Felicia, that was amazing. Now let's hear Penny do it. And... <laughs> And that's the thing is that Penny is, and we're going to talk about this a bit more with her character, but she's, she's a bit more of a muted personality. And so mm -hmm. if you really had, if you really had Felicia Day really going for it, it would be Felicia Day instead of Penny in that scene. Yeah. I would just love to hear her do more music. It was a joy to listen to her. I don't remember where I've heard her voice, but I know that, I mean, I'm, it's the internet. I'm pretty sure it's out there. <laughs> just get enough people together like i would like to hear felicia day sing whatever felicia day wants to sing we're going to kickstart this first and then get felicia day in on after <laughs> there you go <laughs> what do you want to what should i sing like here is here's a wheelbarrow full of money like all right so let, let, let me put a list together do you want i'm a little teapot because i can do that for this amount of money we'll be holding up our lighters <laughs> while you do just <laughs> When we're done with that, can we also have uh, Anthony Head? Yeah. Do the same thing. You know yes. what? If you get enough wheelbarrows of money, I'm pretty sure you can make that happen too. <laughs> I keep meaning to look. He's actually cut an album. Uh, and I keep meaning to look for it, but I never seem to get around to it. I mean, if William Shatner could cut an album, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that one. <laughs> actually, he's done several. Uh, what, what's the one that, uh, I'm a rocket man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard him, I heard him on an MTV music awards. They hired him to cover guns and roses songs. It just ironically. And it was, oh, it was a dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, has been listen to William Shatner singing common people. It's hilarious. You know what? Stranger things have happened. In the last <laughs> few seasons of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, they had a holodeck program about a Vegas singer named Vic Fontaine. And uh, the gentleman who played him, James Darren, was so charismatic and such a good singer, they kept on writing him into more and more episodes. Yeah, he was and... supposed to just be in one episode, right? Exactly. He was just so good. Like, let's keep on bringing this guy back. And he actually released an album called This One's From The Heart, where he sings a lot of the songs that he sings on the show. The Best Is Yet To Come, <laughs> Come oh Fly gosh. With Me, That Old Black Magic. It's available online on like Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, and more. 
All and right, I've actually so, I've listened to it. It's solid. There's nothing wrong with it at all. It's really good. There is something the matter with us. We're going on Dr. Horribles and we're back to Star Trek. How do we do this? <laughs> what do you mean horrible? I'm not surprised at all. This is us we're talking about. Okay, fair enough. Fair point. Okay. What I can... think we've got a metric for the show. Meantime between Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> like we have little tickers. Like, do they mention Star Trek or Retro Rewind more? Which is was... <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> Okay. Anything else we want to say about the music? I mean, we could talk a lot more about the music, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Um, I think let's just move on to film craft. Okay. So is there any groundbreaking technology that, that we see or new techniques that we see in Dr. Horrible that we have seen nowhere else before? They were able to reduce the amount of cheese and smarm that Nathan Fillion can bring to a roll by at least <laughs> 17%. Because when he lets it go full bore, there's not a lot that can contain him. Although uh, he was, in an interview, he did mention that this is the first time I've gone out there, I've been super cheesy, and the director said, okay, do that, but 125% more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he... Brought it. You know, Captain Hammer with double cheese is definitely a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the way that I love Nathan Fillion for what he did to this. I don't love you, Captain Hammer, just so you know. <laughs> anyway, that, that, that is the point of it all. Yes. yes. So well done. Anyway. <laughs> all right. So what what is it in the film craft that we're even bothering to talk about? Because it's I mean, there's hardly any special effects. There's it's, nothing much in terms of framing. So I mean, what what was their budget for this entire thing? Like two hundred k, two hundred k. So I mean, they had to just make do with what they had. I think the creativity lies in what they could do, what little they could do with, uh, what studio lots, cameras, and equipment that they had. Because once yeah, again, was, this was this was happening during a writer strike. Uh, it was definitely. I think the the budgeting was the the big advancement. Uh, that was made here. And it was, it was a lot of uh, handshake deals, I'm sure. And Hey, we're going to pay you out of the profits instead of giving you a salary up front. And um, actual profits, not, not Hollywood profits. Right. Because they didn't yeah. have the studio system that they had to prop up. So. Yeah. Right. From what I recall is that they did do a DVD release, which I was a part of. And I think the, the crew and cast and, and such got paid first from the proceeds Right, I forget what they uh, what they call that. I, I have a similar deal on a, a film that I worked on when I first came to town that I don't expect ever to see money from, but it, that was the arrangement was, well, if this ever makes money, then we'll pay the crew. It's not going to make any money, by the way, so just don't expect to ever get paid. Right. Well, <laughs> wow. and this is it was a brave move because these people were coming in to work on this because they appreciated Joss Whedon. They appreciated the creative team that they had assembled. And when when he rang Nathan Fillion, he saw who was on the caller ID and he said, I don't know what you're pitching, but the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. And and it was a risky move because he's paying money. He's paying the two hundred thousand dollars to get what he can get on the you know, on on scene. And then the rest they are releasing free. And I don't mm -hmm. know how many of you have worked in uh, in the industry before, but free has a hard time making money <laughs> but later they put it up for because they they released it free for a while they took it down then they released the they released the music to to itunes which you had to pay for 
and they've released the videos later on iTunes, which you could pay for. And it's currently on Amazon, which I paid for in order to watch it to, to do this. So they generated income after the fact and were able to pay everyone in full is what they of said. Of course, yeah, it, while it was a little risky, uh, keep in mind that because of the writer's strike, nobody was working anyway. They yeah. didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> and it's it's also pretty noteworthy, uh, not just how it got made, but also the fact that this was one of one of the first really popular releases that we see for television released online. Mm-hmm. Now, there are trailblazers like Felicia Day, who was working on the Guild, and she had developed episodes for streaming before. And... Even when the strike was happening, Felicia was on the on the picket lines and she was talking to Joss Whedon and she said, oh, yeah, have you seen what I've done with the guild? This is something that we're, we're doing that's outside this system. And he said, yeah, funny thing. I've got this idea for a web-based thing myself. So let's talk. And they did. And funny how she wound up very much a, a part of this production. <laughs> uh, but this sets the stage for so many things that we take for granted in our television streaming today. Our Netflix shows aren't based on commercial time slots. Each episode is exactly as long as it needs to be. You'll notice that some of the episodes you're watching are 41 minutes. Fine. Sometimes it's 53 minutes. Okay, that's fine too. You don't have to sell it to a network who then gets their money with the advertising and you have to trim and write for exactly this amount of time so you can have an episode. Right. I totally lost what I was about to add to that. (laughs) But I really want to hear it. So do I. (laughs) I'm sure it was going to be erudite. Dang it. You're the reason why I listen to this podcast, dude. What are you doing? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's nice to know where I stand with you, Mike. (laughs) James, 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 you've tried to stab me. Well, Actually, no, I thank you in for my, that. In so, my defense, you know. I've met you. <laughs> oh my gosh, how did we get here? Okay. How many times do we ask that question, you know, on, in a span of episodes? Anyway. Half as many as we mentioned the Retro Rewind podcast. <laughs> podcast. <laughs> All right. Another thing that this that this did is it it did set the stage for other developers who have a project of passion, that they don't have to be reliant on studio money, that there's another way to make these things happen. Mm-hmm. And in part, we kind of take some of this for granted when, oh, somebody's kickstarting a missed documentary. And I don't say that as a hypothetical. Somebody kickstarted a documentary on the video game Mist. Who would ever make that if you went through the studio? Mm-hmm. Nobody. But yeah. enough people wanted to back it, and so now it's a thing. Yeah, the the coincidental uh, arrival of crowdfunding at the same time as this this streaming entertainment that happened at the same time, I think, was really fortuitous for for projects like this. Mm-hmm. This entire thing reminded me a lot of a fan film, just in how it was shot, how it was released, the passion that was for it. But I realized that this is a fan film for a fandom that doesn't exist yet. (laughs) Wow, yeah. And then Neil Patrick Harris goes to the next Comic-Con and sees what a panel really looks like and and was surprised (laughs) to see people cosplaying. Okay, that's 
<laughs> That's how you really know you've made it. When you create something and you go to a convention like this and people are dressed up as characters from it. All right. Should we talk about the story structure a bit? Yeah. Let's. Uh, I think this is the first anti-hero narrative that we get to explore, isn't it, on our show? Uh, yes, but like with Joker, I think I quibble with the use of the term anti-hero because he doesn't really fit the heroic role at all in terms of, of what happens in the story. I would say that the character of Etienne of Navarre from Lady Hawk could be construed as somewhat of, a, of an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. That's true. See, and this this might be my cynicism coming into play, but I mean, Billy's motives seem to be just this disgust with the sickness of human society as a whole. And he says that he wants to change the broken parts of this world, though he ultimately wants to do that by setting himself up as a despot to fix it. So, yeah, okay, villain, fine. Yeah, this <laughs> is, uh, yeah, this is our paradise lost for mad science. So, fair. <laughs> right. Yes. But remember that in, in when you're talking about story roles, the motives don't really count. It's the, it's the actions and the results that come about. I mean, he's he's performing acts of mayhem and ultimately murder. Even though it wasn't his intent to kill Penny, he killed Penny. That makes him the villain. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you could look at it from the perspective, if you're you're looking at a flipped narrative and we're looking at this from the perspective of the villains, then from Bad Horse's perspective, then he is a hero because... He's overcome his antagonist and transformed the world into something better, in air quotes. Yeah. But in terms of what we as the audience feel is the right thing and a better world, then no, he's he is definitely a villain and not an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny because when we start this start this off, he's just so darn likable. Mm-hmm. But this is really, yeah, this is ultimately a story of somebody's fall and not so much fall from grace, but either from a semi-principled, actually probably better as quasi-principled agent to supervillain. And this, I guess, really, I mean, I've, I've mentioned this before, but it's not really a supervillain superhero story. That's the backdrop for the story about an emotional journey about longing, love, and loss. Yeah, I was having a hard time really putting my finger on genre for it because it's it's got a romantic theme to it but it's not a romance in terms of how anything ends up it's not a romantic comedy even though it's comedic and like you said it's it's not really a superhero show so it, it's hard to, to pigeonhole it to put it in a, in a box and i think that's that's one of its strengths i tend to like films that are genre bending mm-hmm. and this is this definitely fits that yeah it's and it's fascinating to watch this protagonist who attains all the goals that he sets for himself but loses everything that he that really was important to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that gets driven home in the last second of the final act. You know, he's giving his victory song. You know, the nightmare is real. Now Dr. Horrible is here. And uh, he, he goes into the room to take his place with the evil league of evil. Some very colorful characters. And at the head of the table is an actual horse <laughs> standing there being all equine and horse-like and the final line is and i won't feel a thing but when it gets to the word thing there he is back in plain clothes looking blank-faced and haggard at his blog camera again yeah Yeah, he's back to the basement was was what really drove home what happened in the story yeah two words and that was all it was 
And it really feels like you get to the end of that and it feels like that was the first act of a larger story, but I kind of like it that way. I don't really want to see the end of that story. I mean, I have an idea in my head of how it might go, but I think it's, Mm -hmm. it's better left in my imagination than actually put on the screen. And maybe if we were to get the rest of that story, then Billy might actually become an anti-hero or even a, a redeemed hero. We just don't know. Head canon accepted. I'd read that fan comic. <laughs> Since we've already delved into a little bit of Billy, um, Dr. Horrible himself, uh, let's let's talk about the characters themselves. So, yeah, let's take a look at, at Billy slash Dr. Horrible. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, that it's an inverted narrative. The bad guy that we're following is the protagonist. And I think what's important when you've got that set up is that the the villain's motives really need to be understandable and they need to be something that the audience can can latch onto. But in this case, because it's not the super villain story that's important, uh, it's his relationship with Penny that's that's the real story here. Because the, the thing we have a couple of different things that he's that he's longing for. Mm-hmm. And the story is framed in that longing. And mm-hmm. I think earlier you, you mentioned that his longing is maybe not quite put this way, but this longing is tearing him in two directions. Yeah. And he doesn't see that he's constantly choosing one over the other. Yeah. It also reveals just the character of Billy himself. This is a guy who he's obviously brilliant. He talks about ruling the world, about uh, getting fortune, fame, and uh, social change as well, and so much more. But he can't gather the courage to talk to the cute redhead at the laundromat. I think that's one of the things that makes that makes him a likable character. I mean, I kind of identify with with Billy as this character because I've been I I felt like I've been in that position like I like this girl that I can't really talk to or I might even know this girl but I can't talk to her about liking her that's too much vulnerability it's too awkward it's he is awkward when he's talking to his webcam he obviously has insecurities he's in this also very relatable position of wanting to have this job application that he's really nervous about I don't know that I would apply to any place that would kill me if I got rejected. But I don't know. <laughs> Maybe if they have good vision and dental, but I mean. That, that's why I'm working for Lex Luthor. Okay, yeah. there you go. <laughs> but he also has this very related, relatable position of having, mm-hmm. of unrequited affection for yeah. another person. And I think almost all of us have been there. Yeah. You wrote in the notes at one point that, let's be honest, he's a little pathetic, but yeah. he's he's very easy to be empathetic with. You can yeah. sympathize with them because we've been there. We've wanted to talk to the cute girl. We've wanted to try harder and to get this this job that we know if we can just impress this person, get this job, life's going to turn around. And as role players, I think that we can identify a little bit with inventing a new persona that is more confident than we are and capable of doing the things that we wish we could do. Yeah, Ooh, absolutely. And our- an RPG set in the Dr. Horrible universe. <laughs> oh yeah. Do you know what? I could, I think that it would only take a few nudges and a tone shift to take some existing superhero RPG properties out there. The West end games had one in DC. We'll just nudge things around and we'll make it Dr. Horrible. Yes. 
And we find out that bad horse is just like the most OP character ever created. <laughs> with his with his Winnie, his terrible, terrible death, death Winnie. Death Winnie. <laughs> the haunted look in his eyes just <laughs> cemented to um, me how good this was going to be. Well, and that's, I think that we, when we talk about the character of Billy, we also have to mention just how good Neil Patrick Harris was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there is so much that happens between the lines of this script and he in his in his just little expressions his little like drifting off and talking about something else that his character has experience with that is complete invention in his head is beautiful and it really helps sell this role um also little things in his performance kind of help sell this this you know little bit pathetic aspect of his character and do you remember the scene where he's talking or singing about how how many times you've beat me unconscious and you see dr horrible just bam just hitting him bam 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 in between each punch did you say did you say captain horrible or captain hammer oh my gosh it's it's like i'm saying uh, sarah connelly all over again (laughs) captain hammer hits dr horrible that's what happens because there are two characters not one um (laughs) that as captain hammer is hitting dr horrible you can see that neil patrick harris takes the hit and you can see him like real in it and then he recovers for a little bit and he like opens his mouth and extends his finger as if to interject something in between. But before he can actually say the line, bam, he's hit again. And he tries to bring himself out of it to put something else in. That's not, that can't be in the script. That's (laughs) Neil Patrick Harris being Dr. Horrible. Like, I want to say something to make the beating stop. (laughs) Yeah. I I want to interject that I watched the, one of the makings of for this and they did most of the, the little fight scenes in one day. Like, let's just oh. let's knock it all out. And Nathan Fillion just kept selling it, just tearing into poor Neil Patrick Harris. And Neil Patrick Harris would just take it and even be like, okay, now do this. Okay, now knee me in the crotch. Now give me a wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> that was and, Patrick's and, idea. I believe it was. And Nathan Fillion, they were just rolling with it. And, you know, Nathan could be a pretty strong guy. And he's like, oh, I'm sending this guy home sore and hurting tonight. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I think that this these little bits of characterization also get get into something that uh, that we had mentioned in the notes somewhere along the way is that he has this this persona, and there's some question of what what is what's led him to this persona because he actually has some sort of principles in mind when when johnny snow says okay no we're gonna throw down in the park there are kids in that park you know he's not doing that (laughs) so you know what i think brian had asked what what led him here is it this fear of being ordinary and it's it's interesting because i think you do see some of that in in some of the songs because he he talks about how he wants penny to see him and in one scene, he doesn't want Penny to see him actually do the thing to Captain Hammer. But he also wants to see wants her to see him as not a joke, not a dork, and not a failure. So it's interesting as to what what is this persona he's constructing for himself. And has he thought through the consequences of that? Because it's like, 
I'd give anything for her not to have seen this. And yet the results are going to be, you know, pretty evident. And how does he imagine that she's going to react? I mean, for real, when you hand her the keys to a shiny new Australia. <laughs> right. Uh, ha- have you listened to the song uh, Skull Crusher Mountain by Jonathan Colton? No. No. Oh, my gosh. It has a lot of this, a lot of these sort of elements. And, you know, the, the guy who's singing the song is saying that he's made something for her uh, that... Uh, I made this half monkey, half pony monster to please you. <laughs> uh, like, but, I, like, what's with all the screaming? <laughs> like, may, uh, maybe I use too many monkeys, but doesn't it mean something that I ruined a pony making a gift for you? <laughs> I laughed at this line from the song Brand New Day because one, it's hilarious. Two, he's doing it while standing in a gigantic chair. And uh, my first thought was... Back to Superman 2, when Zod asked Lex Luthor, what do you want? Just some real estate. Australia. <laughs> Maybe Which, that's I don't not... know. If you're going to pick a continent, yeah, at least pick it's New only Zealand. worth two armies. <laughs> <laughs> but you build up on there. Wow. <laughs> okay. I did not see that one coming. <laughs> That was a risky joke, sir. Oh, dear. Uh, boo. Yeah, I know. I know. Hey, I'm a dad. It's a dad joke. It happens. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Anything else about Billy slash Dr. Horrible? Yeah, let's move on to Penny. Yeah. So Penny is, she's the, she's not the viewpoint character, but she's the one that is the most more, most like a real person. Mm. She's the way that the exaggerated personalities of the other two characters are revealed as the, well, as ridiculous as they are. And that the, the way that they interact with her proves their real, their real values. That Billy is more dedicated to this villain persona that he's built up than he is to his own happiness. That Captain Hammer is far more interested in what he can get from being a hero than actually being the hero. I think it's interesting in any other narrative, she would have been the foil to one of these other two characters. Mm -hmm. And instead of being the foil, she's throwing all of their absurdities and shortcomings into sharp relief Mm -hmm. at the same time. And I think that's a remarkably well-written character. Yeah. I just want to mention again, just how much Felicia Day impressed me with her vocal skills. And the way she could sing just a a very quiet, simple, and hopeful tune in the song Caring Hands. And then just start bringing a lot of soul and heart in the song My Eyes. I knew that Nathan Fillion was going to bring his usual self to everything he does and just be awesome at it. Neil Patrick Harris is just phenomenally talented and he carried this entire movie with the range of his talents. But she she surprised me and I just I wish she had more time on screen. I wish she had more songs. Yeah, me too. I mean, and it's I think it's also impressive that she is certainly acting as she is singing. She's not an actor and a singer. She she was doing both. She brought Penny to all of these songs. Uh, Mm -hmm. She didn't bring Felicia Day sings this. And you have this relative sweet, mild performance on screen, but Felicia Day was really perfect for this role. Just again, I mentioned Neil Patrick Harrison's little 
Harrison's Neil Patrick <laughs> Neil pa- I you know I cannot keep any of my celebrities or characters Neil Patrick Harrison Ford no <laughs> just, dude he's yeah, gonna come doobie. after you for saying that dude that is <laughs> he is on the internet hunting down people he will ruin us if you do that well then he shouldn't have played a teenage doctor <laughs> okay are we in the clear did he okay all right um the little awkward inflections that felicia day puts into her characterization of penny just seem so genuine Mm -hmm. Uh, there was one scene where she was discussing where she had been fired you know like oh i couldn't imagine you being fired oh neither could i now i can visualize it quite vividly and (laughs) just the way that she she looks the way that she you know she is mulling these thoughts over in penny's head reminds me so much of the looks that one of my friends would give me in high school that it's like i i see my friends in their genuine interaction with some of these little tiny between the lines things and she just brings that so well and i thought that was amazing hmm. yeah you really believe that penny is there and she is the she's the sweetest kindest person and i think that's one of the things that makes the third act so effective that the first mm-hmm. time I saw this, I and spoiler alert, she dies. And when this happens, I was really kind of not sure about this. Like, I, I didn't know what sort of show I was watching at first. I didn't know how this was going to go. You really don't see it coming. You kind of get the sense that if something happens to someone, it's either going to be Captain Hammer or Dr. Horrible. And then when it happens to her, well, at least to me, it felt that way. It's a shock. You're left blinking at the screen going... Did that just happen? Yeah. Well, I think there's a, she has a story beat right before then where she's, she's looking at Captain Hammer who's saying these reprehensible things about her on the stage and she leaves the stage and you think, oh, she's finally seen the truth about him and we're going to get this, this scene where she talks to Billy and then that's just cut off right there. There's a trajectory that isn't fulfilled and I think that's what made it so surprising to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like the emotional rug was pulled out from under me because I, mm-hmm. I, liked, I liked this character a lot. And when you have three major characters in a short narrative, usually when you're watching television, your pivotal characters are safe. And so you're used to existing in this plot immunity. And suddenly, you know, this, this plot immunity does not exist. She dies so that the rest of of the trajectory for Dr. Horrible can happen. Yeah, it is the catalyst for him. But really, looking back, I should have seen it coming. Because once again, (laughs) this is Joss Whedon we're talking about. It doesn't matter if you're a main character or not, you're really not safe with him at the wheel. Uh, He wanted to have... uh, I am a leaf on the wind. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. I'm all going to say, we need to pause now. I need a moment. I need a moment. In Buffy, he wanted to put Eric Balfour in the opening credit scene. Uh, he's the guy that dies at the uh, halfway point in the first episode. Uh, <laughs> wow. Oh, that's right. The fr- their close friend who gets turned into a vampire. Yeah. He was. He wanted to have a credit sequence just for that episode that had Eric Balfour as in the title sequence. <laughs> and let me said, guess. He, this... We couldn't afford to cut it twice. Oh, that's it. I was going to say the studio said no for some reason, I'm sure. I wish that they had, when they had remastered it for UHD or for HD, that they had gone ahead and recut that, but they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's off topic. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, 
Well, yeah, just a little, but that's fine. That's <laughs> apparently we what ne- this episode We never does. do that on this podcast. <laughs> All right. Uh, Captain Hammer. Yes. Moving right along. <laughs> no. Nathan Fillion brings us a character that's right up there with the likes of Professor Umbridge, I think. You absolutely cannot stand this character. That's a good comparison. But you realize that the actor who's portraying them is doing a phenomenal job. See, I don't think I could sing any of Dolores Umbridge's parts. Um, (laughs) Like, I still like, even though I despise Captain Hammer, I still like watching him on the screen. Fair. I don't quite have that experience. My personal subjective interaction with Dolores Umbridge is like, I, I just want to be done with this character. I know that's, <laughs> I know that's part of, of the device, but I want to be done with this character. I, I can keep watching this all day. Actually, I think I did rewatch this more times than I needed to in prep. <laughs> but... This is the man who's supposed to be this is supposed to be the hero, the guy who saves the city and saves people. And yet he's that's not why he's doing it. No, it's not. Morally, he's kind of reprehensible. He's a hero because he wants the accolades Mm -hmm. because he's he's got an ego to him. Whereas our villain, uh, Dr. Horrible, is a villain because he wants to improve the world. Yeah. What's even worse is that it's not just egotistical. He's an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) What's interesting with him is that his his womanizing just oozes out when Penny isn't around. Like he says these things and he kind of things which I want to mention. We cannot say on this podcast. Yeah, we're just not we're not doing that. Like the the funny thing is he kind of reminds me of this Hercules Samson figure. Like this, you know, especially more Samson with the with the womanizing and not terribly bright thing. <laughs> yeah, that he's he's imbued with super strength. He's nigh invulnerable. He's he's got an eye for for ladies first time around, and then is usually done. And the one that he he does decide to stick with, like he's this is Penny, my long term girlfriend. You know, of a few days, of a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. <laughs> he's still in the relationship because of spite like that's why he's still dating her Mm -hmm. and what's interesting is that the first time he experiences pain in his life it it cripples him and i don't know that joss whedon was meaning for this to be a symbol of the fragility of toxic masculinity but that shoe seems to fit (laughs) yeah well to his credit at least he did seek help from a therapist as a result which I think most people at this toxic masculinity thing would not do. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I think that I think that if, if there is crippling toxic masculinity that interferes with your character, therapy is an excellent option to get some tools to help a more functional uh pathway forward so you know hey good good on you captain hammer let's it makes you wonder let's say that in the sequel it makes you wonder who (laughs) suggested it to him because you know he didn't think it up himself (laughs) Uh, it was probably a uh condition of his continued support from the city that he he just ran right out of the building which still held the killer scientist right (laughs) i need someone maternal (laughs) i was (laughs) I was interested in one little bit that uh, Captain Hammer had when he comes in and he tells Penny that the only thing, the only signature the mayor needed was his fist holding a pen, signing. 
<laughs> yeah. I, was, I was wondering how much of that was autobiographical because you've got Joss who's uh, had a troubled history with the networks. He wants to tell these these particular stories and he always has to ask permission. Just like Penny is, is she's trying to get this homeless shelter built and she's having to ask permission. And then somebody comes in, the network exec, and one signature gets it done. But hmm. then as soon as the photo ops are over, we find out, I have no doubt that what's going to happen is the shelter's funding is cut, it's moved to Friday evening, and then it's canceled. Or I mean closed. Yeah. <sighs> Man. I'm going to say it again. Too soon, dude. Too soon. <laughs> you know, it's Firefly is, is over a decade old. I mean, we might... It's, you know what? We'll we'll see if they'll review it on it's, that other we're, podcast. We're creeping up onto two decades old, I think. Yeah. Has it passed fifteen years? Hey, no, we're we're done with those references. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we've talked about the characters, talked about the stage play, about the production, about the music. Being that this is the final film in our film club of movies, superhero movies that aren't Marvel and DC. Uh, what makes this movie different than your typical superhero movies from those two? What makes it stand out from them? I mean, generally, I think the the emotional journey is is one thing. Um, sure, our superhero movies generally have some touch points with us as as human beings. They have to, or or they're not worth watching. But this one is is distinctly an emotional journey and secondarily superhero. Mm-hmm. And I think that you'd have a hard time selling these, these characters that are, are so fragile and are not the best in the world at what they're doing. Um, I mean, even you look at guardians of the galaxy, which is a crew of misfits and you've still got the son of a God rocket raccoon can build anything out of anything. He can repair a spaceship by himself. That's crashed into a planet. So even their, their weakest, most joke characters are still hyper competent. And we don't really have that in in Doctor Horrible. He's he's not hyper competent. He's bumbling a lot of the time. He has a few successes with the the freeze ray works, but not quite. His death ray, if he had actually pulled the trigger, would have killed him. And I don't think that we would have seen that ever from Marvel or DC, at least in their in their film universes. See, I think that's interesting that you're. I, I know this is not what you're asking about, but. You said that if he would have pulled the trigger on Captain Hammer, it would have killed Doctor Horrible. I thought that the free, that the death ray only malfunctioned when it hit after, the floor when he was punched oh, in the face and hit it. the yeah. floor. Yeah, because that was because he fired it off. Sev- yeah, he fired it off several times during his song, and uh, was just about to shoot Captain Hammer between the eyes. Was noticed he? his yeah noticed his freeze ray was was winding down and they got punched he hit the floor and the death ray hit the floor and malfunctioned i don't i don't See, think I don't he was going to pull, pull the trigger he had like he was about to he, he was he, about he to and he stopped and he was like he was trying to and couldn't bring himself to do it yeah so I say it looked like he was going to. He certainly had ample opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> he got caught monologuing, which is a very right. villain thing to do. <laughs> well, we didn't yeah. mention the chorus. I did want to say one thing about them, and that actually belonged way up in the the story structure part. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That not that chorus. The the three <laughs> nerds that are uh, Captain Hammer fans. Uh, yeah, those three, and that. They changed their allegiance when Dr. Horrible won. 
And I think that was an indication of that villain-centric focus where the world was changed to the benefit of the villains. Yeah. And their the alteration of their allegiance was the the evidence that the world had been transformed. I kind of saw it as a commentary on the fickleness of people. Well, that, certainly is that too. I mean, Captain America's great. He's awesome. No way. Dr. Horrible's awesome. Did you say he was holding that death ray and his goggles? So sexy. <laughs> they just killed me with the line from their song. We've got his dry cleaning bill. Four sweater vests. <laughs> it's a little spooky. All right. Do we have any other concluding unscientific postscripts to Dr. Horrible? One thing I do want to mention is that the DVD also came a large amount of submitted videos that were made to the Evil League of Evil. Apparently, oh, they no. put out a contest after Dr. Horrible was released saying, hey, do you want to be a part of the Evil League of Evil? Then send your application videos to here. I forgot about that. There were I have never seen this. Hundreds and hundreds. Oh, they're all on YouTube. And they included some of the better ones and also some of the worst ones. On the DVD, uh, we had such characters as Le Infant Terrible, uh, <laughs> Mr. Terrible, Princess Zombie, Calamitous Orphan, Lord Stabbington, <laughs> Movie Monkey, and the one who is head and tails above all of them, an evil rabbi named Turmoil. Oh my oh, yeah. gosh. <laughs> Turmoil and his minion. If you don't watch any of the other application videos, watch his. It is phenomenal. Is it an actual rabbi? Because I would seriously respect that. I don't know if he is or not. I have not done the research on that. As good as he is, it wouldn't surprise me one bit. <laughs> I feel like I want to mention, they do a little bit of world building in these three parts about Captain Hammer, about their little city, the fact that there are heroes and villains, that there is a, a henchman's guild to which Dr. Horrible's good buddy Moist points out that, hey, you've got enough hours you can get into the henchman's union. The fact that they have a union... And there is the Evil League of Evil. We only see them in the last two minutes of the last act. But besides the most famous one, the only one that's mentioned by name in the series is, of course, Bad Horse. They were so unique looking, I waited until more information was released about them. The Evil League of Evil consists of Bad Horse, Dead David Bowie, Fake Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> Fury Lika, Professor Normal, Snakebite, tie-dye, and now Dr. Horrible. But we also do get mention of a couple of other heroes, like uh, Bait and bait Switch. And switch. <laughs> I kind of thought I was going to wind up with Bait. <laughs> and apparently there's also another villain called Conflict Diamond. <laughs> yeah. And who was the person with the punching gloves? We don't, oh, we don't know. That was the pink pugilist. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I had to look in the credits for that one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else about this film that we need to explore or want to? I feel like we could explore this a lot more in... Any more? Oh, one more, more things? Yeah. <laughs> one thing I was trying to remember, because I, I brought up the character of Moist, who is played by Simon Helberg, who went on to gain a lot of fame as... Howard in, Wallowitz. In, Howard Wallowitz in The Big Bang Theory. When did The Big Bang Theory come out? Uh, that's a good question. I bet we could find that but I don't 2007 well is that going to wrap it up for our look at Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog I think it will sounds right. like it 
Well, then I guess that will take us to our zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, what horrible superheroes can we look to to save us from this apocalypse? See, I actually think that this apocalypse is obviously some supervillain plan that went wrong and got out of hand. I mean, this was somebody's brain control device that now has reduced us to flesh munching uh, zombies. And so I, I think you got to fight fire with fire. Once the zombie hordes start coming in, uh, power up your freezeway, freeze, power <laughs> freeze up your way. freeze, f- fire up your freeze. <laughs> I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> with my freeze way. No. Okay. Stop fire the up world. Your, <laughs> fire up your freeze ray and stop the world. Love it. There, I said it. See, I don't think it was a supervillain. I think it was a corrupt technology company operating with a, a super collider and a hyperloop somewhere in Nevada. That was a plug for Brian's Tales from the Loop game that uh, we've been playing every Tuesday night and hopefully will be released through the Geek at Arms podcast soon. That'd be fun. <laughs> Well, I think that's going to wrap it up, everyone. Thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And Mike, what's our Twitter handle? We are ArmsGeek on Twitter. Also, if you can, uh, leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. It lets us know what we could change. And also, it helps other people find the show. And finally, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. 